So, what, what I want to speak about um, today is um, the relationship between the topic of teshuva and repentance, what we're going to be hopefully succeeding in doing over these days, and, um, and the nature of the self, who we are, what you are, who and what you are. Okay. And, um, and I'm going to take a suggestion of Rosh Slavetics and the Ram, you know, based upon a Rambam. I'm going to take a suggestion literally, even though they probably meant it metaphorically. Um, they see no this is something I do. Um, because I think interesting things happen, and I think some of the Hasidim that we'll get to at the end of the, of, of the session took this metaphor literally, so that's why. And then what we'll do is we'll go back and say, well, if it is just a metaphor, if we're not going to take it literally, then what might it mean? Okay, that's going to be the structure. So, um, and, and a lot of, a lot of what our starting point comes from some, some excerpts from Rav Soloveitchik um, in, his, in his droshes on Shuvah, like I said. One of the difficult things about that book is each chapter is a different lecture given at a different year, this time of year, but over the course of a number of years. And he wasn't really aiming at writing systematic philosophy. He was trying to get people to do teshuva. And it's more like a drosha. The, 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 the chapters are more like a drosha. And sometimes you'll see slight conflicts between or contradictions between one chapter and the next. And you'll kind of, you know... You'll, you'll, you'll burst a couple of neurons trying to reconcile um, the seeming contradictions, and I'm not sure we really should be doing that because they're droshes, right? Um, and and he, you know, um, he wasn't putting this forward as a philosophical treatise to be scrutinised in that way. Oh well, I'm going to no, but we'll see. Um, so we start with two sources that Rosalvich is going to make a lot of use for, use out of. The first is um, a pasuk in, in Sefer Vayikra. It's very important about the day of Yom Kippur. This day, the day itself, the day of Yom Kippur, is going to atone for you and it's going to cleanse you. For your sins shall ye be clean before the Lord. And, and the the... The noteworthy detail, there are many noteworthy details about that pasuk, but a noteworthy detail about that pasuk is that the day seems to be do, doing more than one thing. What are the two things? Atone and cleanse, right? <coughs> cleanse, purify. So we have kapara and tahara, we have atonement, we have purification. Why the need for both? Notions, and then we see um, the Rambam. This is the second. Hey, this hi. I'm not wearing glasses, so I always say hello, and then I see the person come a bit closer. Oh, hi. Yeah. Um, it's kind of nice not wearing glasses because the whole world is a bit of a surprise to you. It's like a two-year-old. Yeah. Um, my uncle um, it was only got glasses when he was about six or seven and he didn't realise that trees have leaves 
he just thought that they were green blobs on top of, on top of trunks, right? It's like, wow! <laughs> anyway, um, so the, se- the second source of Salvatore is going to uh, generate a distinction from is this source from the laws of testimony of the Rambam. And basically the idea that the Rambam says is, so a wicked person isn't allowed to testify in court, there are legal definitions for what makes you wicked. But what happens if you used to be wicked, but you're not, you're not wicked anymore? Can you, can you start to testify again in, in a, a court of law? At what point are you considered no longer to be wicked? And the Rambam lists here quite, um, um, what would the word be, severe restrictions upon rehabilitating your, your status in society as a kosher witness. Um, so, for instance, if you've lent money on interest in the past, right, this is, this is source 2, halacha 5. If you've lent money on interest in the past, people who lend or receive money on interest are not allowed to testify in a bait game. But if you've done it in the past, but you've torn up your promissory notes, on your own volition, you've decided to, and you've shown complete regret uh, that you'll never do it again, not even to Gentiles, even though you're allowed to do it to Gentiles, but you have, you have corrected yourself to such an extent that you wouldn't even lend interest to anybody, then you can come back to the court. When is it considered that dice players have repented? People, <laughs> professional gamblers, really, are, the sort of, are, are a category who are not allowed to testify. Only when they've broken their dice Right? And likewise, you'll see people who, who, who pigeon racers never trust a pigeon racer, that's what I tell you. So soon as someone tells me they're a pigeon racer, I just... I know. But, but when, they, when they break the tools they use to snare them, when they break their pigeon traps or whatever it is that they use to catch their pigeons in the first place and whatever... Um, when is it considered the merchants of produce in, in the sabbatical year, people who sell Shemitah produce, this is important for, for us, or it was at least. Um, when the Shemitah year arrives, they're investigated and it's discovered that they didn't sell such produce, so you've got to wait for a whole other cycle of seven years, see that a new Shemitah has come and they haven't done it. Expressing regret verbally isn't enough. Uh, they need to actually write a document saying, you know, I so-and-so... Okay, and, and, but the thing is, if you read the Rambam's Laws of Repentance, he's, he, he's much less severe in terms of what it takes to be considered about a shiver. Um, certainly, verbal, um, verbal confession would be enough. You, know, you don't have to, you know, on Yom Kippur you're not allowed to write, but before Yom Kippur you don't sit down and write a document listing all your sins. That's just not necessary. A verbal confession is is sufficient. And at least for many sins, um, there's this notion we'll come back to of Teshuvah Gemurah. Full repentance is when you have um, returned to the same situation in which you once sinned in. So a new Shemitah year has come round and you don't sin in the way that you used to sin. That might be necessary for this full Teshuvah, the notion of Teshuvah Gemurah. But you said about Teshuvah before then. Right? If you never get the opportunity, you know, if you, you, you sold in the Shemitah year 
and then you die five years later, fully repentant, that's fine. You didn't need the seventh year to come around again. At least according to Hilchot Shuvah, the laws of Shuvah. So there's a slight tension. The, the Rambam has, has lifted the bar um, of what's considered repentance in these laws as compared to the laws of repentance. So this is where Rasulavechik jumps in. So would someone like to read source 3 aloud? In Yiddish or Hebrew or English? Yeah, go on. Source 3, go on. It is interesting to note that Maimonides did not deal with, it, with this issue under the law of repentance, but rather under the law of testimony. This is because readmissibility as a witness depends upon the achievement of purification from sin, which involves much more than repentance, which brings acquittal, dealt, dealt with in the chapter on the law of repentance. All that is required for acquittal is the sinner's regret of past actions and his resolution not to return to Great, okay. So, Ruslevechik sees a problem. There seems to be a, an inconsistency between the demands of Hilchot Tshuva and the demands of, of the laws of testimony with regard to repentance. And the way that Ruslevechik eases that tension is to do a classic brisker move, right, of saying, well, there are two notions here. There are two different types of Tshuva. And, where, and, and, and we've already seen that in the Pasuk, right? Yom Kippur does two jobs. It's mechaper, right? It atones, but it also purifies. So Rasulavetia says, well, what we see in the Rambam is the repentance of atonement, for which the bar's quite low. And that's what the Rambam was dealing with in the earlier part of Mishnah Torah, in the laws of repentance. What, what did he say you need? Regret and resolution not to do it again. Done. Okay? You need a verbal confession too, but go and see Ayin Shan, right? Go and read the laws of repentance. But over here in the laws of testimony, we're interested in the repentance of purification. And the bar's significantly higher, so carry on reading that. that however, um, however, So, look, you got atonement as soon as you expressed regret and had real remorse, resolution not to do it again. You got your atonement. For all we know, things between you and God are fine, okay? But you've not been completely rehabilitated, at least not socially. We're not going to have you in our court of law as a, as a witness um, until, you've, until you've demonstrated quite a lot more. Um, so now the question becomes, um, what is... So then purification becomes a social character. Well, you see, I'm glad, I'm glad you stopped me there. Um, I think there are going to be two ways to read this, um, to, to read this distinction. Okay? One way is it's a distinction between God and man. Right? So for instance, um, there are some t- types of sinners who we have real reason socially 
to be wary of, even though they've expressed regret. People who have demonstrated predatory behaviour in the past, paedophiles, etc. They may genuinely be remorseful, and yet we're not necessarily going to allow them to teach, in a, in, in, you know, teach minors ever again. Ever. Okay. Um, because what society is going to demand, and they might be fine with God, because their remorse might be the most sincere thing ever. Like they could be truly, truly repentant and changed. Um, so then you might say, well, the repentance of purification is, is for society, and, and the repentance of atonement is all that God requires. And, and I think that, that that's a satisfying read of, of the distinction that the Rambam is drawing. Because the Rambam places this in the laws of testimony about human courts and human justice. So I think that's a nice distinction. But I think certainly where Russell of Asik wants to take it is that these both represent different levels of, of repentance before God as well. Okay. Um, things might be okay between you and God once you've done this, but they're not going to be great until you've done that. Right? Um, Classically, where would Corbin this is a good question. This is a good question. I think classically, Corbin is just this. Right? Um, a Corbin is a kapara. A Corbin is an atonement. Um, okay. Um, so, in order to address our new question, right? so our new question is, well, um, what exactly do you have to do to get repentance of purification. We already have some idea. Um, what exactly do you have to do? And how does it work? Okay. Um, so there's a, there's a verse here from Isaiah, source 4, talking about the wicked person forsaking his way and the man of iniquity his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and God will have compassion upon him and, and we will, and, and, sorry, and, and, and God will have compassion to him, and to our God, for he will abundantly uh, pardon. So, I have another volunteer to read, to read uh, Source 5, and we'll see what it is Russell Vachik wants to do with that verse. That verse becomes important for defining the contours of repentance and purification. The reference here is not to refrain from sin itself, but to avoid the path leading towards it and away from it. The verse does not speak of sinful thoughts, but just of thoughts, which means man's entire way of thinking, his world concept, the intellectual obscurity and emotional ambivalence, which combine to create sin and then cast man within it as though into a dungeon. Great, okay. So, what Russell is focusing on here is... Um, if we just had the Rambam that we've read, what was it, source two, um, you'd think that what it, what it means, uh, repentance and purification, is, um, yes, pu uh, public acts that demonstrate um, complete rejection of past sins. You've broken the dice. You've, you've dismantled the traps. All of the paraphernalia of sin you, you actively destroyed. 
Um, but what Rasulavetic sees in this verse from Isaiah is the need to change your very way of thinking. And not just your bad thoughts, but to just you need to go through a, a, a complete psychological transformation. If I could be the sort of person who could do sin X, then I have to, you know, I have to, I have to completely change everything about me in some way. I have to completely transform. Because our psychologists are very complex. Who knows exactly which part of our psychology um, was responsible for giving rise to my sinful desires, my sinful intentions... Can we just compartmentalise them off and say, oh, I just have a problem with eating. Um, I'll work on that. Or do I need a more holistic change? Right? And, and Rosalavechik is suggesting that for the repentance of purification, based on this verse from Isaiah, there needs to be some sort of psychological transformation. And now, we're moving towards what I'm sure was just meant to be a metaphor. Like I said, I'm going to take someone literally, if only for the sake of arguments and exploration. Rostlevichik focuses in on a quote from Yechezkel about how in the end of days, God's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit and take away our stony hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh. And Slavetic says, a new heart and a new spirit come about only by means of departure from sin, which is considered complete return, while separation from sinful acts is all that is necessary in order to achieve kapara. Okay? Um, so for kapara, for atonement, separation from sinful acts, Purification, a new heart, <coughs> a new spirit. Well, where do you get yourself a new heart and a new spirit from? Like, what does that really mean? Right? Those, those are metaphors already, but it gets, um, it gets compounded by the following quote. So, here the philosophical question in, in Source 8 is, why does God forgive us? Why does he forgive us when we do Teshuvah? On the one hand, right, he's supposed to be completely unchanging. One of the, one of the um, attributes of God in the eyes of the medieval theologians was his impassibility. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. And if, God forbid, he decided that something terrible is going to happen to me this year, that's done, it's decided. So why would he change his mind if I do Teshuvah? So, seemingly rejecting the notion of impassibility, Slavetic appeals to God's chesed. Okay. Um, the repentance of acquittal emanates from chesed. But here he's only talking about the repentance of atonement, the repentance of acquittal. Right? Here, chesed, God's chesed, plays a big role. And here, and here we'll see. If a man regrets his sin, but does not yet abandon the path of sin, he is not considered cleansed of the pollution within him. So let's imagine 
that you are an addicted drug abuser, you have resolved not to do it again, but you're still an addict. Right? And, you know, and it's great that you, that you regret what, what you've done and, and we, you know, we're going to support you all the way in your resolve not to do it again. But you know that there's still some damage there. You are an addict. Um, so you haven't really... None of this has happened. You haven't had a psychological transformation, a new heart, a new spirit. You're the same person, struggling with the same, very same desires. You're just doing a bit better than you used to be doing uh, in, that, in that struggle. Um, and very often, as Russell Basic says, when all you've done is this, the decision not to sin was probably motivated by the fear of punishment or the fear of the consequences. I mean, why does an addict stop? Or, well, terrible things are happening all around them because of their addiction. So they are motivated by a fear of consequences. Um, but even so, the Holy One, blessed be he, accepts his repentance and acquits him. And the only explanation for this could be divine chesed. This well, best... well, actually, actually, it could be a projection of better behavior forward, which means actually more holiness in the world mm. manifests. Mm. So where you've gone so far is a little bit superficial for me. Yes, yeah, so... so well, I think that's sort of I like that idea, but I think where Rav Slavetik's coming from is, look, Hashem said to Adam and Chava that on the day that well, to Adam, I don't think Chava was created yet, on the day that you eat from the fruit of this tree, you will die. The punishment for sin is that's it. I made you. I made you on certain conditions. If you sin, that's it. Okay. You sinned. Why aren't you? Why aren't you being killed straight away? Now, it's all very well that you're doing something great now. Okay. But you broke the terms of the conditions of your very creation. Why does he allow you to continue on? Okay, you're doing great stuff. You're projecting holiness into the world now. Okay. But why is he letting you to continue to exist? Because of his chesed. He would be justified, so to speak, to snuff us all out as soon as we do even the smallest sin. Because he made us, and he made us in certain conditions. So that's why you need to invoke chesed, loving kindness. But what, what's interesting over here is just the basic says God doesn't need to invoke chesed to forgive us when we've done this. Even, even by the likes of din, of strict justice. Right, so in contradistinction... Repentance, which fills the qualifications of the attributes of strict justice and truth, can only be achieved through complete purification. This this repentance is acceptable, for the sin which polluted man disappears as though it never existed, since man has proven himself to be what is considered in the words of Maimonides, in Hilkotashuva, another person. It is though he has undergone a complete transformation, how then can sins committed by someone else be counted against him? Through repentance and purification, man is reborn and he gains a new heart, a renewed spirit, another outlook on life and different horizons. One man enters the bath of ritual immersion and another emerges from the water. The sinful person emerges as a pure one and indeed 
Our sages have pointed out that changing one's name, this is a Yerushalmi, a famous Yerushalmi Gemara, changing one's name is uh, especially beneficial for penitents because you're becoming a new person. Right? So here, a new heart, a new person. You're in, in, a new heart, a new spirit. You're a new person. So, even by the lights of strict justice, God may have been, God may have passed an edict, God forbid, that's very negative concerning me. But if I'm no longer me after Yom Kippur, because I had completely transformed myself, then it's not that God's changed his mind, I've changed myself, right? And I'm not the same person, right? God still has, so to speak, God forbid, I hate I shouldn't be using myself as an example, but he still has a photograph of me on his dartboard, and, you know, he's going to shoot that arrow come what may. But I might become a new person, such that photograph is no longer a photograph of me. He can shoot the arrow, it's not going to harm me if I'm no longer that person, if I'm a different person. Now, it's pretty clear to me that Slavatic Mentis is a metaphor. You're not really a new person, are you? Um, but what I'm, what I'm going to do... What I'm going to do is I'm going to take it literally for the fun of it, and we'll see what happens. And, and, and I'm going to argue that I think some Hasidic thinkers did take it quite literally. Okay? The Sadok of Cohen, the Lublin, we'll get to. Okay. So the idea is... What is it that we're ideally hoping to do on, on Yom Kippur? We're hoping to become entirely new people. That's what we're hoping to do. Entirely new people. So here are a few questions. Okay. So one. Um, what exactly is a person? Sounds like a really... Well, I know what a person is. I'm a person, right? Um, but it's not so obvious. I'm not my body. At least I don't think I am. Every seven years or so, there's a complete regeneration of cellular material, apart from maybe my brain. You all know about that, right? But, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the same person as I was 15 years ago physically. I'm like whole, constructed out of a whole new stuff. Um, so what is it? What is it exactly that makes me me? Because that's what I'm looking to change. I'm looking to get a new one of them, right? So what? What exactly are they, right? And and then we'll be able to answer the question of how do you change them, um, you know? Um, and then there are some other questions that kind of seem a bit absurd, but I'll I'll list them for the for the fun of it, right? So. If you really become a new person, then who gets the mitzvah of teshuva? Right? One of the one of the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs is if you've sinned, you should do teshuva. Well, is teshuva the dying act of the last person? Or is it the first act of a new person? That's, that's one question. Does anybody else have any other questions about, about what it would mean for sugar to be your recreation? 
Yeah. question how do you know if you've done it in general Jewish law um, isn't known for its focus upon what's going on internally right there's this phrase in the Gemara devarim shebeleiv in or devarim matters of the heart they don't really exist not until they're manifest in action do something with it right but there's no action that's sufficient like you said it's about having a new and you know even breaking the dice isn't sufficient on, on Russell Asik's picture. Right? You need a new heart, a new spirit, you need to be a new how do you know that you've done it? You can get some more funny questions like um, uh, who are your relatives? <laughs> right, so um, in the laws of conversion to Judaism, it's considered to be the creation of a new person. Okay. Right. To the extent that if a, if a non-Jewish brother and sister convert to Judaism, they're no longer considered to be brothers and sisters because they, they're new creations in the eyes of Jewish law. They could marry one another, right? And it wouldn't be incest, according to Jewish law. We don't practice that, and there are rabbinic injunctions against doing that because it's not wise for genetic reasons. But halachically, no, no, you know, from the, from the eyes of biblical law, you're a new person. Well, you know, if we're going to take a Slavachic literally, there is a precedent for becoming a new person in Jewish law. It's conversion. Well, if the Baal Teshuvah becomes a new person, do similar things apply? Who gets Yerusha, right? Um, you know, if, if I'm a Baal Teshuvah, maybe I no longer get the Yerusha from my parent. I'm a new person. Do you, do, you, do, you sit, do you sit shiver for relative? They've disappeared. They've disappeared. I had, a, I had a sinful child. Yom Kippur, thank God, he did to shiver, but I had to sit shiver. Where does the next person start from? When, when exactly does the next person start? Zero. Yes, yeah. Who, who's his parent? What, you know? Um, so, so obviously we're seeing that we shouldn't take this literally. Or maybe not. Yeah. What's going through my mind, I'm thinking of two people I know very well yeah. who were one of four siblings in very disturbed homes. Uh-huh. And in each case, they have completely cut off their relationship with their siblings. And I could never understand it until this moment. Yeah. Because now it really makes psychological yeah. sense that it was so painful, That's it was right. so bad. That's right. What, what? You, 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 uh, you just have to leave it behind. Yes, I agree with and you. And that's not what you're talking about, and you well, know the way it is. Well, maybe it is, because I think where we're going to get to in the end, when we cash out all of these metaphors and stop doing this ludicrous thing of taking it really super literally, we're going to see that one of, one of the truths expressed by this picture of Teshuvah is that certainly for some types of sins and for some types of sinners... The only way to survive moving forward is to somehow erase your past. Some right? types, as in like some people can understand and some people don't feel this way? Is that what you're yes, I mean, look, people, some people are different. Some people use that, and we'll get, we'll get back to this later, but some people use their past as a motivation for moving forward, and that can be very healthy. But there are some situations where it might be the only thing you can do. 
is to, is to just write it off, block it out, pretend it didn't happen. I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I'm sure many psychologists say that's not generally a healthy thing to do. There may be some times in which it's the only thing a person can you know, find to cope with. Yes. So in a 12-step program like an AA, yes. there's the same avoiding people, persons, and things. Yes. And sometimes, as this woman was saying in front, I, I have practiced as a therapist uh-huh. for a long time, I had clients who had to cut off Families yes. Because the families were drunk. Yes. And being in those families was it was just impossible. Absolutely. But to stay sober and, and do this chuba that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, this chuba of tara, purification. Exactly. Yes. And then okay. when you get to a certain level also, maybe it's in the middle. There's a concept of your past, your averos become mitzvahs because yeah. they got you to this yeah. place. Right. We're going to get there, right? Well, in, at least for us Soloveitchik, that's the most advanced you can get, right? Is where you become, so to speak, comfortable with your sinful past and you can use it. But they're stages, you know, and as you said, in the 12 step, step, 12 step program, this is an early stage. Right? Um, okay, so, but what we're doing now for the purposes of, of my own intellectual satisfaction is we're, we're pretending that Rasulavetic really means it really kind of metaphysically seriously what the sugar does is it makes you a new person so I want to really look quite carefully at question one so so question one like if you take this idea here's a picture of five year old me okay it's very realistic yeah from far away <laughs> not wearing glasses it's very realistic um, and this hasn't he grown? It's a picture of 32-year-old me wearing a kippah. Okay. <laughs> um, um, now the question is, what makes him the same person as him? Okay. And and the question is known by metaphysicians. In, in philosophy departments is the question of personal identity over time. Okay. So we could do all sorts of things. Okay. Here's another five year old who exists at the same time. Okay. Maybe they even went to, to kindergarten together. There's another five year old. But actually in many ways this one's more similar to me. Okay. This one might still have problems wetting his bed. This one doesn't. And neither does this one. So in that respect, this one is more similar to me than that one. This one might have had a precocious proclivity for philosophy and he read a lot of Bertrand Russell. And in that regard, he's quite similar to me. Whereas this one was not interested in Bertrand Russell at all. Um, This one likes smoked salmon. This one likes smoked salmon. This one doesn't like smoked salmon. So we could design a five-year-old who in many ways is just much more similar. To, he might even look like me. Right? This one look like, might look more like how I've grown to look than this one. He might be a relative. He might be my brother. So he might, might be my twin brother. It might be that as I was a child, I looked more like my mother. But I've grown, as I've grown, I've grown to look more like my father. And it could have been that this one's the other way around. So that if you looked at them, you'd say, gosh, that looks just like you do. But it's not me. So it's not about similarities. That's clear. Okay? And I might share the exact same number of cells with this one and that one. I mean, none, right? Because I've, re- I've completely regenerated cellularly. 
right? And if you're worried about the few cells in the brain that you carry with you for your lifetime, let's just take them out. I had, I had an operation, okay, and they're gone. I could still probably function without them. Probably, yeah, yeah. You've got loads of cells up there, just take some out, you know? This does brain science, so I have to be a bit careful uh, with what I say. Um, so, so it's not what it's not the stuff that makes me. It's not. So, what would you suggest? What is it that makes me that person and not that person? What would you suggest? Um, cumulative experiences. Yeah. Cumulative experiences. Memory. Okay. So, what you've jumped straight into is the Lockean theory of personal identity. Um, let's have a little read of what John Locke had to say about personal identity. Um, we're not going to read it all, probably. Um, but let's, let's start. Um, it's source number nine. Who wants to start reading? And we'll swap at some point, because it's, it's a long... Go on, then. You start. Thank you. Where in personal identity consists, we must consider what person stands for. Yes, like that word, person. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can consider itself as itself, same thinking thing, in different times and places, which it does not only by that consciousness, which is inseparable from thinking and, as it seems to be, essential to. It being impossible for anyone to receive without perceiving that he does not perceive. It doesn't, so it doesn't seem to see. <laughs> he does yeah. perceive. Yeah. Carry on. When we see, hear, smell, taste, feel, meditate, or will anything, we know that we do so. Okay, so the first idea is what is a person, and then we can talk about what makes a person the same person over time. So fundamentally what's making this what's making you a person is certain rational um, um, abilities um, combined with consciousness, being aware of having them. Um, this is deeply unsatisfactory to a lot of philosophers because it seems to include too many sorts of things and to exclude too many sorts of things. For instance, this might make a dolphin and a chimpanzee a person because they have rational capabilities and they are self-conscious. So one, one way to go is to say, as, as you're saying, you are. yes, what, what you might say in Yeshiva you know, language is enathanami. So, okay, so yeah. dolphins and chimpanzees are persons. Okay, and that's, that's the line that, that a considerable number of philosophers are taking. But uh, another problem with this conception of what it is that a person is, is it excludes certain people. Right? So what happens about people who are severely cognitively impaired? Right? And we want to still say they're a person, um, and this definition doesn't necessarily allow for that. Um, to the extent that Peter Singer, I, I think, who, who was the first to argue forcefully that certain non-human animals are people, would probably have to just accept that there are certain human animals that are no longer people, or that were, or were never people, because of their severe cognitive impairments if they didn't have enough rational capability or they didn't have enough self-consciousness to constitute personhood. 
we might not be comfortable with that. But what we what we don't we don't really need a fully fledged definition of what is a person so much um, as a definition of what makes one person the same person over time. Um, So, having, having said that consciousness is kind of one of the, how do you say sin qua non in, in plural, my Latin is not good enough, but given that, that consciousness is one of them, one of the watermarks of, of being a person, um, and since consciousness always accompanies thinking, and it is that which makes everyone to be what he calls himself. I, I call myself the, the person who's conscious of being myself. Right? So the word I always points to the person consciously uttering it. Right? So, so the centre of my consciousness, the seat of my consciousness, seems to be in some sense where I'm located. Um, so, in this alone consists personal identity, i.e. the sameness of a rational being, and as far as this consciousness can be extended backwards to any past action or thought, so far reaches the identity of that person. You are all of the people you can remember being. That's how far back your personal identity stretches. So what are some of the funny things about this view? You're not you were never a baby. Okay. Really bizarrely, you might have been somebody who was somebody who was a baby. Because you, you might be able to remember being a three-year-old. What is, could you repeat that? You are all the people... That you can remember being. So if you remember being three years old, then you are that person that you remember being. Interestingly, your three-year-old self probably remembered being a baby. So, so you are... You are identical with somebody who is identical with a baby, but you're not identical to the baby, which is really weird because that, that contradicts something known as the transitivity of identity. Normally, if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then C should be equal to A, but that doesn't seem to happen here. I remember being a three-year-old. My three-year-old remembers being a baby, but I don't remember being a baby. Therefore, I am identical to that three-year-old. That person is me, right? But I'm not that baby. So one way of fixing this problem... You need that. You need that. Because yeah. if, for example, a baby at eight months was separated from its mother forever yeah. and became, as a result, a very uh, nervous or vulnerable yeah. individual, maybe at 12 or 30, you yeah. don't remember that eight-month separation. It's important. But it's part of you. Yes. And so you need that three-year-old who remembers... Okay, good, good. So, what, so, so, some, so, so that this is part of the fix, right? What... Uh, um, Derek Parfit, philosopher at Rutgers, um, has argued that what we need, instead of memory, this is still considered to be a, a broadly speaking Lockean account, but instead of memory, we need something called psychological connectedness. And the idea would be you are. All the people you remember being and all the people that the people you are remember being. Right? So, so it stretches back to the baby because you are that three-year-old and that three-year-old is that baby, so you are that baby. And also you could write into things like um, 
You are all the people whose internal psychological states have a direct bearing over your own. You know, um, we need to work that out. You know, my wife's psychological states have a very important impact upon me, but not quite in the same way. It's kind of in an indirect way. Um, but, but as Barbara was pointing out, if I went through a trauma as a baby, that might directly affect my psychology today, even though I can't remember it. So you might want to write those sorts of things into the notion of psychological connectedness. Fine. Okay. But what's really interesting here is that um, so let's just read um, paragraph 20. Okay. Um, another uh, volume here. It's on page 3, chapter number 20. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Absolute oblivion separates what is thus forgotten from the person, but not from the man. Mm. But yet possibly it will still be objective. Suppose I wholly lose the memory of some parts of my life beyond the possibility of retrieving them, so that perhaps I shall never be conscious of them again. Yet am I not the same mm. person that did those actions, had those thoughts that I once was conscious of, though I have now forgotten them? To which I answer that, there, that we must here take notice what the word I apply to, which in this case is the man only. And the same man being presumed to be the same person, I Meaning, we use the word I to do two jobs. To refer to the seat of consciousness and to refer to this human animal. And we often get confused between the two. Carry, carry on. But if it, it be possible for the same man to have distinct, incommunicable consciousness at different times, it is passed out the same man would at different times make different persons. This is um, split personality disorder, right? So if it, was, if it was possible for the same man to have distinct incommunicable consciousnesses, right? So, so sometimes with split personality disorder, you're, you are divided into a number of different cells. Some of them are aware of each other, but some of them are completely not aware of each other, right? These are incommunicable consciousnesses. It's passed out, what we say, they're different people. Which we see is the sense of mankind in the boundless declaration of their opinions. Human laws not punishing the madman for the sober man's actions, nor the sober man for what the madman did. That's, that's right. So he says, really, what we should be interested in the word I is the person and not the animal. And if you were literally out of your mind when you committed a crime, then it wasn't you. Right? And that's why, in the course of law, you can claim mitigation because of... Uh, but, he's, but he's taking this really literally, this talk of I was out of my mind. He really means it. right? He would go so far as to say... And he talks to say, that's why we say in English we have these expressions, not himself or besides himself. He really means it. He was not himself. But he would go so far as to say, if you committed a crime while paralytically drunk, and you wake up the next morning with no memory of it, then it wasn't you. You were the person who got drunk. And you should bear some responsibility for getting drunk. Okay? Um, it's your fault that you allowed your human animal to get so intoxicated that you should disappear for a few uh, hours. 
And therefore, you should bear some kind of derivative responsibility for the things that your human animal did when you left it in a drunken stupor. Okay? But you were not the person who did all those embarrassing things. Right? Um, this is a very strange view. I call it the amputation of temporal parts. Okay? And I'll explain what that means in a minute. But it's like this. Um, don't ask me what happened in the summer of 1999. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I have amputated that summer from my biography. From my autobiography. If you read my autobiography, I'll have you know, all the other seasons of 1999. But the summer's just not going to be there. Yeah, but you're conscious that that's what you did. So you do it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Gonna, we're going to come back you to that. You just don't want to. That's right. I just, don't, I just don't want to. I haven't yet succeeded. That's why don't you want to have it there. Yes, you're right. It's because you are not going to commit those things. Of course, of course, you're, of, of course you're right. Of course you're right. If I'd really forgotten it, I wouldn't even remember that I'd forgotten it, right? So, so I forgot to remember to forget you in that song, right? So, there was something about you also that committed whatever you're trying to forget. Yeah, that's now, that's now, it's now. It's not like that anymore, but you were. Then. Yes, I agree, I agree. The only way this works is for people with dementia. Yes, that's, okay. That's the only so that's way that's true. But so otherwise, that's it's your conscience. Well, 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 okay, no, so, but let me just get the picture out on the table. You're right that it's very unrealistic, except it's going to be made a little bit more realistic as we move on, okay? So at the moment it's just kind of like a, a, a caricature of a view we're going to try and refine. But the idea would be, um, my body is spread out through space. My body is spread out through space. And you can amputate spatial parts, right? You could amputate my arm. And I'd still be me. I'd just have fewer spatial parts. Okay? So there's a way of thinking of a human life as spread out through time. Right? So. I was born in 1983. Okay. It could be here's the part that's the summer of 1999, right? Maybe I could just amputate that part, right? Just like I amputate that, amputated that spatial part. I still exist. I just have a gap, a temporal gap, right? Just like it still exists. I could even have a gap, right? You could put a hole, you pierce my ear. You pierce, I can have a hole. I can have a spatial hole, right? You can, you can be spatially gappy. You could be temporally gappy, Okay? So, every time I've done a very serious sin, and I've done this to sugar of purification, I've created these little temporal gaps. I won't even tell you when that was. It's too embarrassing. Okay. And, um, and, and Locke would say, when would you have succeeded in, in removing a temporal part of your life? If you've completely forgotten it. Yes. And Barbara would say, you know, we're adding in psychological connectedness. You probably haven't really succeeded unless it doesn't inform the person you are today in any way. Right? Not just that you can't consciously remember it. It's, somehow, it's just not relevant to the person you are in any kind of causal way psychologically. Probably not possible. Okay. But what's interesting is, at times, Rasolovetic seems to speak as if that really is what's required. That's to say, he, sp he sometimes seems to speak as if this 
personal transformation talk should be taken literally and should be understood as a Lockean operation of temporal part amputation. Why do I say so? Look at this source, source 10. Sometimes one will erase certain years of a lifetime. Ex-convicts, for example, tend to completely forget the years they spent behind bars. They simply decide to erase those years from their past. And he learns this from the chief butler in the story of Joseph, when Joseph's in prison, there's the baker and the butler, they both report their dream to Joseph. And Joseph says to the butler, you're going to live, you're going to get out, please remember me to Pharaoh. And it takes two years. Why did it take so long? And the verse in Genesis says that he forgot. Right? He says, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Says Rav Soloveitchik, he did remember and actually wanted to blot out of his memory the whole unpleasant period he spent in jail, actually hail, um, jail, probably because he wanted to forget that he had ever been in prison. So, you're right, they could just be fooling themselves. It doesn't work. But there's certainly the attempt to, to do... It, it's, we act as if this is possible. We're acting as if we could really remove a part of our, our autobiography. And you see people... I'm sorry, what's your name again? Judy. Judy made the point about people who had traumatic upbringings who need to walk away from their past. And we see people in the ballet sugar movement, in the movement of people returning to uh, religious observance. You know, they, they uh, discard all of their CD collections they start dressing in a new way, they unfriend lots of their old Facebook friends, they, you know, they change their name, you know, I'm no longer John, I'm Yurachmiel or something, um, because they are, they are trying to erase their past, and they don't want to be reminded of their past. Okay? There's, there's a Gemara in Baba Metziah that says that there's an Avera, a special Avera, of reminding a penitent person about the sins they did in the past. Well, this makes especially uh, this makes a lot more sense if you realise that at least one of the stages or one of the varieties of teshuvah is about forgetting. So you've really scuppered their process by reminding them. But though I've already primed you to know that Rav Soloveitchik didn't really believe this really happens, right? You don't really amputate parts of your life and become a new person, or at least become a person who's distinct from the person who occupies these temporal gaps, right? Rav Soloveitchik didn't really think that happens. It's just a metaphor. I think there's reason to think that the Tzidkat of Tzadik, Rav Sadok, Karim Lublin, really thought that this is how Teshuvah works, or at least one type of Teshuvah. So let's read this quote, it's from Siddhartha Tzaddik 99. The sign of complete Teshuvah is when the person cannot remember his sin at all. So unlike me, who, who claims to know that I blotted out the summer of 1999, this is a person who, who can't even recall that they've done Teshuvah for a sin. It's just, got, it's just gone. 
So it is written in Chinese government seal that you shouldn't say to a Baal sugar, remember your previous deeds. And similarly, Hashem, blessed is he, doesn't remind the complete Baal sugar of his previous deeds, and consequently the Baal sugar no longer remembers, his, remembers himself. For all of the powers of man come from Hashem, blessed is he, and so too the powers of cognition and memory, and if Hashem, blessed is he, doesn't overflow to him and remind him, then he will not remember. Okay, I'm going to unpack this in the end. Let's just get the whole quote out, then we'll, then we'll try and unpack it. In Tanadavei Eliyahu Rabbah we taught that in the future, the Holy One, blessed be he, will say, I do not remember his sins. God's going to say, I do not remember his sins, and they do not rise up in my heart. And our sages have said, in Shira Shirim Rabbah, that the Holy One, blessed be he, is the heart of Israel. Consequently, the sins also won't rise up in the heart of man. And this is a fraction of the world to come. All the while that a person hasn't arrived to the depths of this sort of teshuvah, which is the purpose and completion of atonement, he will not be at ease. And of this King David, peace be upon him, spoke, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, for I know my transgressions. A person has to say to himself, My sin is ever before me. This is a very difficult piece. Okay? Very difficult. Okay. So let's, let's, um, let's try and study it a bit better. There are moving parts. It's, it's tough. Okay. Pardon? Yes, absolutely. And I think that he alludes to that process actually in the final paragraph. Right? That, that last bit. All the while the person hasn't arrived to the death, they should be doing this. Okay? Well, it seems like there should be something in between, the process of eliminating it. Of what? Eliminating it from your memory. Yes, well, that's what you'd think, right? One of the, one of the most confusing parts of this, this excerpt is taken at face value. It seems to be saying two completely contradictory things. One, you've only really arrived at the goal of Teshuvah when there's no memory whatsoever. It's gone, completely erased. And the way to do it is to think about the sins you've done always. Constantly remember them. Keep them before your eyes always. Well, you're not going to forget them that way. That's, that's, like I say, what? How? Yeah, Judy. Is it saying that God helps you to forget? Yes. When you really, you yes. don't have complete control of Yes. It. You don't control what you remember. Like, God, God didn't control of that, right? God is the source of all of your powers. It's much more radical than that. Polish Hasidah in terms of what God is really in control of, but this isn't a Polish Hasidah um, um, session. God's in control of what you remember and what you forget. Your job is to concentrate on your own shortcomings and remember everything. If you, you know, that bad sugar who deletes all their Facebook friends and tries to act as if their past is no longer part of them, is going to end up hurting people anyway. Right? Hurting the friends and hurting their family and, 
And as I said in, my, in, our, in our last class last week, for those of you who were here, if somebody wronged me, and I want to have a conversation with them about the wrong they did to me, and they've forgotten it, that's hurtful to me. You wronged me. Don't be forgetting it. That shows like a flippant attitude towards the wrongs you've done. And the Tikkata Tzaddik isn't saying that you should try to forget things. You should try and remember them. Because if you don't remember them, you're not going to work on them. But then, he says, if you've really done this labour well, you've really, every occupant, so we, there's, the verses he's citing at the end come from a Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah that we, I think it's Masechet Rosh Hashanah, or is it Masechet Yom, that we, that we quoted in our last class. There's a machloket between the rabbis and I think Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov about whether you should repent of sins that you've done in the past, that you've already repented for and moved on from. Okay? It's in Yom. Okay, good, good, thanks. So, on one view, the idea is well, you repented last year for that and you haven't sinned again. It would almost be, as we discussed, a lack of faith to repent again. Don't you believe that God forgave you? And in a sense, that side of the argument would really work with Tzadik, because you know, it's gone, it's not even you anymore. But that's not the side he sides with. He sides with the side that the halacha ends up siding with, Eliezer ben Yaakov, which is that every year, year on year, you should repent for the sins that you remember doing. doesn't matter how long ago they were, doesn't matter how hard you've already repented for them, it doesn't matter how much you've moved on from them. Right? And, and in fact, the verses that Eliezer ben Yaakov uses to to demonstrate his position are the verses that the Tzikatatana uses at the end of his quote, which is a quote from the Psalms, that my sin is ever before me. Never forget. You need, to, you, need to, you need to work on it. But then the Tzikatatana says, but if you do that, if you succeed, if you really go through that psychological turmoil of year on, year out, scrutinising your entire history and trying to become a better person and trying to resolve not to do the things you've done in the past and expressing real remorse, you are going to change. That is going to be transformative. And there will be times where, over a long span of time, there might be things you've done that you can no longer remember doing. Not because you're being flippant, because you, you are so far moved on from that point. That is just so far removed from who you are. You should try to remember. God, on the Tukapatadik's picture, will let you forget when you, when, when, when you get to the appropriate stage for that, when you've really done it. And then how dare we remind people, right, once they've got, once they've got to that stage. But yes, I think the Tukapatadik thinks that in rare occasions... You amputate temporal parts. Or God does it for you. God does it for you once you've gone through the real work of trying to remember all of the bad that you've done. And without going too deep into Polish Chassidah, one of the key ideas of Rabzadok and the Ishbitzer 
is that there's some sense in which the whole world is contained in the mind of God. Right? Everything is somehow contained in the mind of God. It's almost like we're just figments of God's imagination. Well, if God has forgotten something, then it doesn't exist. Okay? The, you know, the summer of 1999, gone. If God forgets it, it's gone. Right? What is history? It's God's memory. If God deletes something from his memory, it's deleted from history too. Okay. I'll take some questions, yeah. How do you know if God forgot? Good, so here you get the question, how do you know, right, that we had earlier. And I think that Sadok has both a beautiful but, um, but a frustrating answer. And basically the question is, you'll never know that you've done it. As long as you can remember the sin, you haven't got to this level yet. Okay? That doesn't mean you haven't gone to sugar. It doesn't mean God's angry with you, because this is one of the highest levels of teshuva. Okay? Um, when you've got it, you won't even know that you needed it in the first place, because you've forgotten all of the sins that you needed it for. And what's, and what's more, it could be, that what, that, consistent with what Rav Kohen is saying, is that you might go to your grave not having quite had it, but when we come back, please God, in the world to come, right, if, we, if we merit, if our, if, if our toil in this world of doing sugar merits it, then in the world to come, we'll all be raised without our sins. God will have forgotten them. Because that's what it seems to say in the second, in the second paragraph, that, um, that in the future, the Holy One recipe, he will say, I don't remember his sins. Right? So maybe this doesn't really happen to any of us. Until the until the world to come, yeah. It's not a real literal remembrance. Yeah. It's just sort of making us feel better by thinking that he's there. Like like it's a little child. I don't know. I don't see what you did. Yeah, it could be. It could. It could be. So I'm I'm willing to say, as we're going to come back to Rav Soloveitchik when he said you become a new person and all that. It's just a metaphor. It's like as if you're a new person. I, I don't think it's right to read um, these Polish Hasidim as talking as a metaphor that, that God will forget. I think they're really talking metaphysics and theology. The badness goes, or it somehow gets transformed to good. There are countless other um, examples. Uh, there's Rabbi teacher, the Ishvitzer, talks about how we ate from the Eit Hadat Tovvara, and the Ishbitz, in a famous comment to the Ishbitz, says that in the world to come, God's going to give the Torah a new punctuation. Not changing any of the words, but just punctuate it differently. So it will be that we ate from the eight hatov, eight hatov, and then there's going to be a period. Vera, something, 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 right? Because, because it turns out that in retrospect, we only ate from the good, right? There, there's real transformation. So either it's that God is going to take all of those sins and forget that they were sins, kind of make them into something good, or they're going to be gone. And I don't, I don't think they're talking at the level of metaphor, or at least not more than anything else they say. It could be that everything that Polish Hasidah says is metaphor in some sense. But I, I don't think it is to be taken less literally than the other stuff they say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this discussion of... <clears throat> Actually, helps me understand the Ishbitzer in a way that 
happened mm -hmm. before, mm -hmm. where he talks about the the ultimate the ultimate that happens in in tshuva is that you is that you are shown that God did it. Mm -hmm. That it, it was a way that God was running the world mm -hmm. that had to happen. Mm -hmm. Because at, but but Ritsa's spin here is that is that is that actually you've shifted so that it is no longer it is no longer resident as personal yeah. having done. Yeah. So who did it? God did it. Wasn't me who did it. <laughs> yeah. And you shut you see you see that. Yeah. Yeah, that's very nice. Okay, so what we're going to just look at here quickly before we move on, just a little bit of summary so we can move on. So, for us on the basic, there are two levels of shuva, and we're about to see a third. So, the first and the easiest is to shuva of atonement. You regret what you did, and you resolve not to do it again. And that's great. Please, God, we should all merit just that this Yom Kippur, and that we should have the self-awareness to know the parts, the things that we've done that require this, even this level. It's no mean feat. The second level is to sugar of purification. And we've seen that for Rav Tzadok, what it amounts to, what it amounts to is, like I said, the amputation of temporal parts. And we can answer some of these questions now. What is a person? What is like this Lockean thing of, uh, of uh, extended memories and psychological connectedness? How do you become a new person? Well, you don't really do that so much as cut out the bad parts. Right? You are no longer the person that did the Aveira. But when I cut my arm off, I don't become a new person. I just shed a part. Likewise, when we talk about becoming a new person, we mean we shed the part of the person that did the bad. Who gets the mitzvah of tshuva? I imagine it's, it's you. Right? The person who did the trouble. There is no other person. You amputated. You know, if, you know, if you uh, performed a medical operation on yourself, who gets the, the, the credit for good medical work? You. You did something similar. You amputated a part of yourself. You get the, you get the award. Uh, how do you know you've done it with a dress? You probably can never know that you've done it, and maybe no one ever gets to do it until the, the world to come, not fully. It might be a long process. Finally, who your relatives, it's not like the conversion case. It's just not like the conversion case. In the conversion case, at least in the eyes of the law, you become a new entity. There's no sense in which you're becoming a new entity here. Now, I don't even think in conversion you actually become a new entity. You become a new legal entity, just like a, a company can go bankrupt and then start again under a new name. That's all that's really going on in the conversion case. But nothing analogous is going on in, in the transformation of a, of a Balthasheva. Okay? So those are some answers to those questions. But what you see for, for, for Ratsadok is, this is the pinnacle. Stage two, it seems to me. 
But for us, Soloveitchik, stage two is a, a, a path to stage three, which we're going to look at now. And what's more, for us, Soloveitchik, it's pretty clear that it's a regulative ideal. That's to say, you never actually achieve it. The, the butler doesn't really forget. He remember, he's trying to forget. It's a, it's a regulative ideal, means something you're not going to achieve, you're going to try and do anyway. Okay? That's what this is. You're not going to achieve it, this is just a basic. But there are at least some circumstances in which, it, you know, like in, in the 12 step program, there might be some circumstances in which it might be, for one reason or another, beneficial to try to forget, even though you know you can't. Okay? And try to move along. But for him, it's very important that it's not the pinnacle. That is a stepping stone to what we're going to look at now. Okay. Um, okay, we'll skip to stage 13. We're going to skip quite a few sorts of things. Uh, skip to page uh, 13. Oh, maybe not. So, um, an, an operation of this sort is not easily carried out, as the basic says. An operation makes me think again, he's talking like, like you're really cutting something out of your life. A man of 50 or 60 years of age can by no means erase in a moment a third or a half, or even three quarters of his life. What then should he do if he wants to repent at this stage of his life? Can he go on identifying himself with those years of sin? If he does so, it is if he admits the existence of evil and acknowledges it as one of his permanent personality traits. So basically what we're seeing is Rastanovetic could be seen to be levelling a critique of, of Rav Tzadok's picture. Because if this is the pinnacle, and we should understand it the way Rav Tzadok understood it, it's a real operation where you get rid of chapters of your autobiography, well, it's going to become progressively difficult if you do Teshuvah as an old person, you've got a whole life to erase. And what's going to be left? Right? Your whole life's going to be reduced to a couple of minutes. Right? And it's going to be inordinately difficult. Okay? And there's another reason why we might demure. Which is, it's really not true that the Lockean consideration of, of personal identity over time is the right one. So, for instance, we've already seen if a person has dementia, if a person has severe dementia, do we want to say that they, that they died at some point and that their person has left their body, they're no longer the person they were, if they can't remember who they were? If, they can, you know, if it's so severe that they don't remember their name and they don't remember anybody else around them, they just, do we want to say they're no longer the person they were? I know some people, you know, my mother, um, um, had, had both of her parents suffered for dementia, her father for a long time, her mother only for a, a short amount of time before she passed away. And I, and I know a number of people who've coped caring for parents with dementia, and some of them, I think, feel comforted by the idea that, yeah, really it's not, it's not them anymore. You know, dementia can make people do horrible things, it can make them aggressive, it can make them whatever. Some people are comforted by the but some people think it's horrendous. That what, they're saying they're no longer my mother like that's still my mother. Right? And that's why I still want to treat that's why I still feel this 
this, this great sense of, of duty and, and, and love, and it's my mother, I sure she can't remember it. So I think, you know, people's feelings are quite, it seems to me, people have quite disparate feelings about what the right uh, attitude should be towards the sufferer of someone with dementia, but, dementia. but certainly Locke makes no room for thinking that this person really is the same person that they were. And Bernard Williams, um, great philosopher, uh, Cambridge and then, and then somewhere in America, um, he wrote this great paper called The Self and the Future. Okay. Um, so what he does is he he starts with a Lockean intuition, right? Um, you've got person A and person B. And we tell them, I take person A, and I tell him, I'll call him A and B, tell him, science has developed this amazing new neurological procedure where I can download all of your memories, your emotional states, everything, onto USB key, okay? I can take them, I can upload them into person B's brain and I can do that having already taken all of person B's mental information onto another USB and put them into person A's body. It's not even a brain transplant, you can do that if you like, but you might think that it's not about the actual brain, it's about the contents of the brain. So, So if that's what you want, or just swapping data, okay? Think of them as computers, we're going to wipe both of the hard drives and then we're going to uh, just swap them over. Okay? So I'm going to put all of person A's stuff in there and all of person B's stuff in there. So I tell person A, person A, tomorrow, you know, everything that's going on in your head is now going to be going on in person B's head. And um, I'm going to give one of these two bodies a million dollars tomorrow. And I'm also going to take the other one and torture it ruthlessly. And I want you to make a purely self-interested decision. Which body should I torture? And which body should I give the money to? Now, if we've got, if we've got Lockean intuitions, who's going to wake up remembering being A? Body B. Okay. So for a Lockean, body B is going to be person A. And if person A has to make a purely self-interested decision, then person A should say, torture my body, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to have vacated it, and give the money to, to person B, because that's where I'm going to be. But Bernard Lewis says, sure, you, you might think the choice is like that, but if you tell the story slightly differently, you can start to get, feel a bit uneasy. So he says, let us now consider something apparently different. So that was case one. Now we're going to study case two, which is apparently a different case. Someone in whose power I am tells me that I'm going to be tortured tomorrow. I am frightened and look forward to tomorrow in great apprehension. They say, they're going to torture me. Okay? That's, that's horrific. He adds, when the time comes, I'm not going to remember being told that this is going to happen to me. Okay, that doesn't make you feel any better. If I know that I'm going to be made to forget that I'm going to have torture and then be tortured, that's still 
pretty horrible. Since shortly before the torture, something else horrible is going to be done to me, which will make me forget the announcement. This certainly will not cheer me up. Since I know perfectly well that I can forget things, and there is such a thing as indeed being tortured unexpectedly because I have forgotten or been made to forget a prediction of the torture, that still will be a torture which, so long as I do know about the, pre- the prediction, I look forward to in fear. Then he adds that my forgetting the announcement will only be part of a larger process. When the moment of torture comes, I shall not remember any of the things I am now in a position to remember. Well, this doesn't cheer me up either since I can readily conceive of being involved in an accident, for instance, as a result of which I wake up in a completely amnesiac state and also in great pain. That could certainly happen to me. I should not like it to happen to me, nor to know that it was going to happen to me. He now further adds that at that moment of torture, I shall not only not remember the things I am now in a position to remember, but will have a different set of impressions of my past, quite different from the memories I now have. I do not think that this would cheer me up either, for I can at least conceive the possibility, if not the concrete reality, of going completely mad and thinking perhaps that I am George IV or somebody, of being told that something like that was going to happen to me would have no tendency to reduce the torture of being told authoritatively that I was also going to be tortured, but would merely compound the horror. So I'm being told, you're going to... You, you're going to get be tortured. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, don't worry. You're going to have to be a complete amnesiac in that and still be tortured. Yeah, that's still horrible. Oh, don't worry. You're going to go completely insane and think that you were George IV and actually have accurate memories of being George IV and then be tortured. Yeah, but that's still horrible, right? Okay, that's still something I should be scared about. Nor do I see why I should be put into any better frame of mind by the person in charge adding lastly that the impressions of my past with which I shall be equipped on the eve of torture, will exactly fit the past of another person now living. Right? It's not made any better. So, so instead, what we're telling the story is, this person, person A is you. You're going to go mad and think you're person B and then be tortured. Is that something you should be happy about? No. Is it made any better by the fact that person B is also going to go mad and think that he's person A and be given money? No. And Bernard Williams' point is, this is exactly the same. Case two is exactly the same case as case one. It's just been told differently. Right? Because what we did in case one is we took all of your memories and all of your mental states and put them in this head. And, we took all, and, you know, and in that case, you didn't really care what happened to this body because you moved bodies. But we tell it a slightly different way. And we start to think, oh no, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just this person here. <laughs> It doesn't matter what happens to my memories. I could go through complete transformation and still be the same person. And therefore, there are reasons to be doubtful about the Lockean um, conception of, of identity over time. Okay, so this is another reason to not like Rav Tzadok's uh, type of chuva. So anyway, finally. That's yeah, sure. That's because you pick something that universally every person would dread and Yes, you're right. You're right. And the way that these things, th- these sorts of, uh, this type of philosophical literature is called thought experiments. And the way that it generally works is you pick the most extreme cases to really test um, where everyone's intuition falls. And one of the brilliant things about that paper, you can probably find it online in PDF if by googling it. Um, 
it's, it's Bernard Williams, what's it called? I, I put the title down, The Self and the Future, is he tells these two stories in completely different ways, and only at the end does he reveal to you they're the same story, and your intuitions have gone completely different ways both, both times. It shows you how philosophers can be deceived sometimes by their own storytelling. Right? You know, it's really um, it's a cool paper. But just, just to finish, I want to just fit out Rostovacic's real position. And Rostovacic turns to um, a Gomorrah tractate, Yoma, that reconciles two statements of Rachel Akish. We won't see them inside because we don't have time. Rachel Akish talks about Teshuvah as if it takes away your sins and makes them as if they were just accidents. But he also talks about Teshuvah, seemingly on another occasion, as if it takes away your sins and transforms them into mitzvahs. Okay? And the Gemara does a classically brisk thing to say Rachel Akish was talking about two different concepts, two different types of Teshuvah, but not these two. Okay. Both one and two are really part of type one. Okay. Um, so he calls them, um, yeah, the chuva of year and the chuva of ahava, right? The chuva of fear and the chuva of ahava. We spoke about how these can be motivated by fear. You're trying to scrub out your past, or at least you're scared about the consequences. Shubhameyahava is when... And, and, and if you do that, at best, because of God's chesed, he'll forgive you. Okay. And, and Sorry, at worst. And at best, if you go follow out Sadok, He'll delete those episodes from your life. They don't exist anymore. It's not you. That's wonderful. But you can go further. You can keep those chapters in your life and have them transformed into mitzvahs. And the way you do that, basically, in a, in a nutshell, is by using the experiences of your negative past to be a better person than you, than you could have been without those negative experiences. So I often end this class with talking of a person I once met who was uh, a, a drug addict. He spent many times in prison. He stole cars. He stole money from his parents. He stole all sorts of things. Did house robberies in order to feed his heroin addiction. He was in and out of prison. In his final stint in prison, he finally had a really good uh, prison rehab, which changed his life. When he got married, he wasn't able to come to America to, to get married because he has a criminal record as long as your arm. But he has spent the rest of his life educating kids about drugs. And nobody could do very few people, could, only somebody with his experiences could do it as well. And what he manages to do is to take those negative chapters and say, well, in a sense, you can say that, that he's turned them into mitzvahs because he couldn't be this amazing person he is without them. And that's such a shuvah me'ahava. And in a sense, if this is the pinnacle for Rav Sadok, Rav Sadok's picture doesn't make much room for this. Well, not, not obviously or easily. Because if God has forgotten your sins and they've disappeared altogether, they're not part of your history, then... 
wrote the rest of the Vedic, to Shubra of Ahava. And here's the idea. There's a nice uh, Ishbitzer on the final page, we don't have time for it, but the basic idea is imagine two films side by side on the same cinema screen. You have a Cohen doing the holiest thing on earth, bringing Kurbanus in the holiest place on earth to God in the temple. And you have a guy on a farm getting his hands mucky in the, in the, in the sty and in the filth of the animals and the whatever. But at the end of the film, this guy brings a Corbin to the temple. And your whole perspective changes. You're like, who's the holy one? Well, they're both holy. And, and you know, the guy getting his hands mucky. The, the, our lives are a storybook. And the end of the story can shed a completely new light upon the beginning. Okay. And that's to, that's to Shuvamayahava. And what Russell Avechik, I think, is saying is that yes, Teshuvah of purification is a stage along the way to Teshuvah of Ahava for some people in some circumstances. But it's not the goal, it's not where you should stop. It might be that this guy on his 12 step rehabilitation program for a while has had to like, not even think about heroin, not alone, like, you know. He'll now get out the paraphernalia in, in, a, in front of the school and show them. There might have been a time where he just shouldn't look at that stuff. That's the sugar of purification stage. And some people don't move beyond that, and that's, you know, it's great whatever you're able to do. But the sugar of Ahava stage is where you reclaim your past. And, and you, you've got to a stage where that's no longer dangerous for you. And, and you use it to be the best person that only you can be, using your own past. So, uh, to conclude, there is lots of kind of crazy um, um, metaphysics going on in this class. But really, if there's like a take on Yom Kippur, I, I would want it to be one of the, two, the following two things. Okay. Some of us feel very, very scarred by our own sins. And the idea that there's even a somewhat plausible philosophical framework that could say, do you know what? That doesn't define you, and maybe you can even erase it. That might be a really healthy thought for some of us to, to, to take into Yom Kippur. But for those of you who don't need that, or are not comfortable with that philosophically, there's another way of looking at sugar, which is that my life is as yet an unfinished book, I know exactly what's in the first few chapters and I can't change it, but I can shed a completely new light on those chapters by writing the next chapters in a different way. Okay, please God, we should all, uh, we should all merit some form of sugar. Thank you.